Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Well, Mike, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Thanks very much. Okay, so there is a lot going on in the world. Um, we talk on this podcast a lot about China. Is there? Is there? <laughs> you know, are, there are there any crises that we could think of? Well, that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, is there? There's a lot going on, but how much of it is actually newsworthy versus how much of it is the news has to have something to talk about? And that's always a, a point of contention. Um, we had on Noam Chomsky a few months ago, and he was arguing that, particularly with like China, that a lot of the news about China is U.S. and British propaganda trying to get things stirred up that really there's no there there. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. How much of it is worth following is the question. So we'll let you. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would. I, I don't know that I would take my advice on on whether China is a national security threat from Nome, but, you know, it is <laughs> it is what it is. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's it's a bit of a shit show uh, currently globally, hmm. but I, and I don't think that's U.S. or British propaganda. Um, and uh, China wants to be at the top of the food chain. I don't think that's propaganda. And they steal our shit constantly. I don't believe that's propaganda. So I'm not sure where where, where he's going with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. But every, hey, everybody's got their own opinion. Um, well, we've had on. General- I just happen to have the only one that's correct. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, we've had on General Spalding, who has very much a sentiment similar to what you have. And so there's a wide array of opinions about China, which I find interesting. And um what I always like to point out is it seems that people kind of paint China very, very negatively or very positively. And it, it, and to me, we, when you're looking at what China's doing and what the issues at hand are, um, there's always the element of propaganda. And I find it so hard to cut through and to understand what is it they're actually trying to accomplish versus what they say they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to keep the narrative internal. So as an expert on these things and someone with the history that you have, how do you read the news from China and what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there, there, two things can be true at the same time, right? So China's got fascinating and, and marvelous history. Uh, the, uh, the people are, you know, incredible. I mean, the time I've spent some, some fascinating times over there. People are, can be terrific. Um, and so it's, it's an amazing country, you know, right? With an amazing culture. That's all true. And the Chinese regime under Xi, uh, you know, it can also be an authoritarian, uh, dictatorial, power-hungry regime that is intent on maintaining power and uh, getting to the top of the food chain. And they have been doing that for decades, uh, in part by hoovering up, stealing everything they can in the realm of economic esp- uh, intelligence and intellectual property and research and development, not just from us, but from really anybody that they can access. So, you know, and he's he's uh, cemented his control. He's increased the uh, internal security services. Uh, he's increased uh, monitoring of his own citizens. He's squashed any hope for democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, they've been committing all sorts of atrocious crimes against the Uyghurs. Uh, look, it's you know, so those two things can be can you know you can you can disagree with the regime, but think you know the country has a lot of positive aspects to it. And, you know, those things can be true at the same time. So um, I, you know, I, again, I, I think that there is a well-documented history of theft of intellectual property, research development over the years by the Chinese regime, uh, by the PLA and other intel elements within the Chinese government. That's not, you know, that's not really up for debate. That's, you know, we've got a long list of, of examples and case studies, uh, convictions, uh, not just here in the U.S., but again, amongst all our allies. Uh, and that is how they, in part, decided to uh, build their economy uh, and, you know, get, again, advance the ball because it's just 
you know, and that's great. I mean, every every nation wants to do that. It just depends on how they decide they're going to get there. So what would you say to someone who goes, well, the U.S., it might not steal corporate secrets. Um, of course, we're the a little bit, our, our economy set up a little bit different, so it's kind of hard to argue one-to-one. But we do what we want. China is doing what it wants. The U.S. is doing what it wants. So on that level, both countries are doing the same thing. It just looks differently. Well, yeah. Um, and I always get that. I always hear, you know, you always get that from sort of that, that whataboutism when you talk about something that uh, Iran or, or Russia, or the U.S. Is, or the uh, China is doing. It's always like, well, look at the U.S. The U.S. does that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there are there are significant differences. And one of those I just noticed that apparently I've got some light coming in from a side window. It looks like I bathed in some sort of <laughs> heavenly uh, glow. It does, and, and it does. it's it's actually uh, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, it's 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 almost as if I'm about ready to ascend uh, somewhere. But anyway, um, the uh, you know the the reality is is that China. One of the differences is a remit of their intel operations is to support and promote. Uh, the Chinese businesses, right? Mm-hmm. State-owned, pseudo-state-owned, uh, supposedly private enterprises. Um, and so they'll collect, they'll hoover up everything they can possibly get their hands on. And they've got the motivation and the resources and they'll sift through and they'll determine what is going to benefit one of their uh, companies, whether it's Huawei or, or any um, uh, organization that that is... Again, whether it's supposedly privately owned or whether it's pseudo or wholly state owned. And in the U.S., and this is where, again, you know, I, I, I get that people will look and go, oh, sure. Well, of course, that's what you're going to say. But I'm just telling you from experience that, you know, in the U.S., we have a firewall, right, built up between uh, what our intel community does and our private markets, our private businesses, our private sector. Right. And the idea being is we don't we don't gather intel to support any of our companies. Right. That's not our our mission in life, because in part, the idea being you have to have a firewall there because that otherwise you're screwing the the free market system. You know, you possibly benefiting one company over all the others in that sector. So there's a separation there. We we haven't built our economy over the years by. by avoiding the costs of research and development and engineering and innovation, you know, by stealing shit. And, you know, that's what, uh, you know, China, not just China, but amongst other nations, what they, what they've done. And it's, and it allows them to avoid the heavy costs of research and development and of innovation. And it's been to their detriment a little bit because, you know, they've built up a, you know, a real strong ability to reverse engineer and not necessarily, you know, a world beater capability to innovate, but, you know, they're very good at what they do and they're very aggressive. And, you know, I'm sorry if people disagree with that and think, wow, the U.S. does the same thing. But uh, no, we monitor, we report on, we collect on uh, countries, including China, that do not have our best interests at heart. Uh, and that's for national security purposes. That's not to support and build up our private sector. When I was in China in 2019, um, I was was with a group. I can't remember. It's one of those trade organizations that's in Beijing, you know, U.S., China, this, that, or the other. And they argued that um, it was a former uh, CIA guy who was kind of the, I can't remember his title, but somewhere somewhere there he was. Um, And he was arguing that um, Snowden and what Snowden did was really detrimental to our ability to monitor uh, China. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I get that there are people who support Snowden's actions. You know, I don't, you know, again, I'm not looking to draw any sort of moral superiority here. I'm just saying that based on my experiences um, and what I know and time I spent, you know, behind the curtain that, uh, yeah, Snowden's actions had some real, real detrimental and negative uh, operational impacts. And that's not speaking to whether, you know, he was justified or not in it, right? That's beyond my pay grade. I'm just saying that it did have, in fact, 
you know, some very negative operational consequences. So how do we then? I'm really digging the soft light. This is, you know, this is really. <laughs> it looks good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I might, I, yeah. Huh. The sun's just beaming in. It's a beautiful day out here in Boise. So the sun's just beaming through the uh, conservatory windows. <laughs> so how do we balance then what responsibility CIA, U.S. government has in allowing this ascent of China, right? So I mean, if you read books by, I mean, I've got the 100-Year Marathon. I've got all these books on China, and you read them, and they always talk about, well, we miss this or we miss that. And and part of the thing that's always perplexed me is from the outside, reading kind of the, quote, experts on uh, the, the, the geopolitical experts on China is they will say that, you know, we, we didn't understand this, we didn't understand that, but it really seems to me that part of the problem, if you're if you're negative on China's ascent, you say we shouldn't allow it to happen, is that we allowed China to ascend because we were trying to fight the Russians. And so we put the Russians as the greater evil. We kind of downplayed what we're seeing from China because we were trying to win that battle. So we kind of minimized that. Is that would you agree with that? Disagree with that? What, what's your take on why we allowed China to ascend? Well, I, yeah, I think it's I think you're you're you definitely there's an element of that there. Uh, there's an element of China's always been considered to be sort of the a the the great holy grail of commercial marketplaces too, right? So there's always been this desire that you know since uh, opening up relations with China that somehow they would gradually move towards a more democratic environment, or somehow, regardless of whether they do that or not, you know there would be a great opening of the marketplace, mm. right? And and it would be a, a free and fair environment and uh, you know, that, of course, doesn't or hasn't happened yet. Um, but I think there's a, you know, I don't know that we were so overly focused on on Russia that we weren't paying attention to China. We were. We have the ability to, to multitask. Now, is it a great ability? Not really. We tend to, you know, get like a raccoon and chase after the next shiny tinfoil ball. So, I, I, I take your point in that, you know, there was a, a focus on Russia. You could argue that, well, look, we overlooked a lot of things. We overlooked Latin America. And the next thing you know, we, you know, the place was, you know, was uh, loaded with Hugo Chavez, you know, lookalikes. And we were all standing around saying, well, how'd that happen in Latin America? And in part, it was because we, you know, we weren't paying attention. We weren't devo- devoting resources and, and making a serious diplomatic effort and, and, and commercial efforts. So, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm talking myself into the idea that, you know, we don't do that good a job of multitasking. <laughs> um, but I think now there's there's no question about it. Look, Russia's got the GDP of a small European Union country, right? right? And they've always obviously punched above their weight, you know, because of, of uh, their military capabilities and technology they have. But um, I, I don't think there's any disagreement amongst the intel community or the military at this stage of the game uh, that China is the primary concern from a national security perspective. Um, and, and, you know, again, hopefully we're getting better at, at that. So what concerns you most about China? Is it something like the digital yuan, which is you know a threat potentially to reserve currency status? Is it just economic power? Is it the spying? Like if you had to rank your China, your, your, your China concerns, rank them one, two, three, four. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the number one and the horse has left the barn on that one is 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 the theft of intellectual property and R&D and the costs that that's uh, resulted into our economy, uh, lost jobs, uh, national security concerns. Um, and so that's that continues to be the problem. You know, look, President Obama, you know, supposedly signed an agreement with Xi, you know, a few years back and said, oh, we're not going to engage in these sort of shenanigans. And that, you know, that never happened. They're not going to change that because it's been successful for them. And fine, every nation acts in its own best interest or should. That's the way it's supposed to operate. They just happen to view this as, as part and parcel of acting in their own best interest. Um, so I would put that right up at the top. I think uh, uh, the next primary concern is, is this uh, issue with Taiwan and what that may mean, right? Because... I personally don't believe that Xi is going to fade off into the sunset without bringing Taiwan back fully into the fold, right? I believe that's going to be, from his perspective, psychologically, I think he views that as 
his greatest legacy when he does eventually leave. So if you have to ask what's that timeline look like, I mean, you know, I would argue, okay, well, we got to look at G's health and, you know, how long he may be, you know, in office and probably factor that into deciding, you know, when they may act on Taiwan. And then the problem there is what are we going to do about it? So as a flashpoint, I guess what I'm saying is there, I mean, they, they're continuing to build up their Navy in the South China Sea. They've always been upset about the fact that, you know, we've been out there and, and responsible for, you know, uh, keeping international waters, you know, uh, operating. And so they view that as us playing in their rightful territory. And so, you know, part of their effort is to, is to try to push out their reach. Um, and look, they've established the, you know, their first uh, outpost naval uh, port in, in uh, Africa. And, and Obama, Trump, Biden. Do any of them actually strike fear in Xi Jinping? Does it do any of those presidents' names mean anything? Or from their perspective, are they going to do what they do regardless who we put in office? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I don't think they really, you know, we tend to put more weight into, well, who's who's in charge? What's that administration look like? And, you know, are they tough or are they more conciliatory? And you know, now you you know, obviously with a with a strong foe that doesn't have our best interest at heart. It doesn't do us any good to have what's viewed as a conciliatory uh, type of administration. So, you know, yes, they factor it in. But, you know, from G's perspective, you know, he's got an agenda um, and, you know, some degree of timeline, which does play off of global actions and events to some degree. But they're just going to march forward. They're going to continue doing what they're what they're doing, I would argue, regardless of who's sitting in the White House. So then how, how do you battle them? If, if they're going to steal, they're going to do these things, um, what, what does deter them? Well, you know, solid counterintelligence um, and a more aggressive position on our part to try to prevent that theft. And part of that is, look, the, the FBI, which, you know, is responsible for counterintelligence in the, in the U.S., they've been making a real effort in this regard over the past few years They've been trying to enhance sort of the um, public-private, you know, uh, dialogue that exists between the Bureau and other parts of the intel community and law enforcement and the private sector um, to try to uh, assist companies to protect themselves um, and to try to get companies to understand the security threats to their operations, their intelligence, their proprietary data. Um, and get, you know, get that dialogue so that there's more of a sharing of information both ways. And that then allows for us to shore up some of the some of the uh, weak links in this whole process and hopefully identify more uh, efforts. But look, the, you know, the Bureau stretched thin right now on counterintelligence uh, operations against you know, Chinese spying here in the U.S. Right. They're opening up a new case you know, basically every day. And yeah, we had on uh, James Olson. Are you familiar with him? Mm-hmm, uh, yeah, yeah he, and he was talking about about that, um, about just how much need there is for the counterintelligence part of the of, of the bureau of the uh, CIA. Yeah, yeah, and again, the agency, you know, has, has gotten much better at working with the bureau over the years. Certainly since nine eleven, there was obviously a lot of talk about you know the dysfunctionality of that relationship in the aftermath of nine eleven, but the relationship has gotten much much better. And that's important. That sharing of information uh, is critical to uh, any counterintelligence effort, whether it's against China or any other nation that, again, is acting against our interests. What do you think concerns Xi Jinping, Chinese leadership? What's the thing that they're afraid of? Uh, yeah, I think the thing they're most afraid of is, is internal unrest, um, losing power losing control of the, you know, massive population that they've got, creating an environment where they, you know, things start to spiral and they have to revert to uh, overt force to try to, you know, uh, tamp down any unrest. Uh, there are more protests around the country in China than we're aware of. Uh, they're very good at, at shutting down information flow. They're very good at monitoring their own population the level of scrutiny, the level of surveillance on their 
their citizens are, is, is, is astounding, right? But uh, the one thing I think they're most worried about is, is, is that, is uh, some, you know, internal unrest that starts to spiral out of their control. And that is always, I think, top of mind. And look, I mean, G is, you know, he's gone to great lengths over the past few years to, to uh, tighten up and, and improve, improve, it sounds probably the wrong word, strengthen the mm-hmm. domestic uh, security services. And so, you know, that tells you that, you know, there is this concern. So when we talk about companies competing with China, um, I'm a big advocate of removing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, I think that that is, I think on one hand, we whine and complain about China doing all this stuff. But let's be honest, China's paying bribes and it's a, it's against the law for me to go to some other country and pay a bribe in that country, despite it has nothing to do with this country. I think it's an abomination, but you, you, you might have a different, I, I presented this to the, to the embassy in Beijing and they're like, no, no, this is no. really good. And I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. What are, what are your thoughts on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Yeah, look, I, you know, my company, uh, Portman Square Group, for all your information and security needs, uh, we do a lot of work in the FCPA realm, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act realm, you know, UK, you know, Privacy Act, all, all the, the basically areas that we're talking about here. And and I'm a big fan of, of having the U.S. follow these regulations, right? I mean, just because, um, you know, uh, countries, and again, it's not just China, you'd be surprised at the number of countries out there that are trying to, you know, tilt the playing field in their favor by, you know, kicking bags of cash under the table and, you know, securing licenses and uh, getting past government regulations. Um, but that doesn't mean we should be doing it, right? That's like, you know, if I tell, you know, if one of my boys, you know, comes home and says, you know, all his, all his friends are up to some shenanigans and I go, eh, well, if they're all doing it, you should go ahead and feel free to do it too. It's just, you know, that's not a particularly great analogy, but it's it's what I got. Um I think it's important for the U.S. to have these sort of regulations in place that keep us uh, doing the right thing overseas. And does it does it hamper our ability to sometimes secure business? And, and yes, of course it does. You know, if uh, if you've got a a, co- a company out there, a European company that's willing to pay cash and, and you know to secure a a deal, then sure, we're at a disadvantage. But I would argue that's fine. We know that. We work against it in the sense of we try to understand, and that's one of the things my business does. We try to understand what companies are doing out there uh, to try to level the playing field. But I don't think we should be in the business of, of shutting down the FCPA. So the, the the question seems to go to a larger though thought process of does the government own you to me, right? So whether or not you think bribes are ethical or unethical um, why should any government have a say over its citizenry when it's in a foreign country, not conducting business at all? Like there's, there's no, um, like I, that, to me that there's, there's levels to the question, but one of them is just, you know, how does the U S have a right, a claim on you when you're in pick a country, Nigeria, China, wherever, how, like, how do you get past that ethical question? Yeah. I don't think there's any ethics about it. I think it's a, it's a, matter of legality of, of, you know, uh, doing the right thing and, and, you know, paying bribes on to secure business overseas, I think is uh, a question of uh, legality as opposed to ethics, right? I mean, I'd like to think that people have the right ethics and say, okay, I'm not going to do that because I don't believe it's the right thing to do. But more importantly, you're a U.S. company, you're a U.S. entity, right? You're, you're, uh, yeah, you're benefiting from that in the sense of, you know, that, Theoretically, you're you're operating in an environment, meaning the U.S., um, where you can innovate. Let's talk about Russia for a second. You mentioned them a minute ago. Um, you mentioned Russia and kind of what we're seeing from them. Where does this go? Like, how, how much longer can Putin drag this out? Um, how does he get out of this without just losing credibility inside of Russia? Or is the propaganda so strong that he can navigate that somehow? No, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, I think you could argue that, you know, their control was was strong enough to to allow him just to not worry about public opinion. He's clearly got to worry about public opinion. Right. They, that that limited conscription that they did uh, supposedly of 300,000 additional uh, men for the uh, for the battlefield at, went famously bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And in part because 
they didn't have complete control of, of the narrative, right? Both inside and, and obviously outside of Russia. Um, so uh, it's more of an issue now. But how long can he go on for? Well, uh, you know, from Putin's perspective, he doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing down. You know, there's occasionally, maybe less than a handful of times, you know, there's been some talk about, well, I'd be willing to negotiate. Um, but just about everything that could go wrong for him uh, has gone wrong since February when they launched this, this uh, you know, uh, unfortunate incursion. So, you know, but he, the fact that he's not looking to find a, an off ramp uh, in any serious way says that, you know, he's decided it's politically more important for him right now to continue uh, in some misguided hope, maybe that he can win or come out with a, you know, a favorable settlement than it is to, uh, to back out now. And part of it is he continues to be able to fund this whole effort uh, because of uh, oil and gas prices. And, you know, the fact that he's buying artillery from North Korea, which isn't exactly, you know, at the top of anybody's hit parade in terms of manufacturing high quality, fine artillery, mm-hmm. uh, or that he's buying drones from Iran. Iran is, is, is enjoying this moment, right? Because they're, they're now making some bank off of Russia. So it's a, it's a definitely a mess, but the, for trying to understand Putin's motives, really ever since, you know, the beginning of the year, uh, has been proven to be a very difficult, if not impossible, lift. Yeah. Should Joe Biden, the U.S., push for a ceasefire? Um, well, <clears throat> that is a really, really good question. Um, and look, nobody really gave all these you know, the people out here and, you know, out in middle America and on the coasts and waving their Ukraine flags and saying we're all Ukrainians and putting Ukrainian flags on their bumper stickers. They didn't give a shit about Crimea back in 2008. <laughs> they didn't care about the, you know, the fact that the Russians have had troops in Eastern Ukraine, you know, for eight years, you know, they, where were they then? They didn't give a shit. So now all of a sudden they're like, Oh my God, well, yeah, it's, it's immeasurably worse now because he basically tried to overrun the whole country. But I guess my point is, um, you know, I, it's a little disingenuous on the part of people who say, well, you know, he's a, no, you, know, you didn't care before. So if a settlement you know, is put on the table, that means, look, he's not giving up Crimea. That's never, ever right. going to happen, right, peaceably. He's never going to, to relinquish Crimea. It's the only port for his Black Sea fleet. Um, and But if, if a settlement's put on the table that says, okay, you know, Russia maintains its obvious presence in Crimea and – a presence, you know, uh, you know, in Eastern Ukraine of some sort, uh, in order to prevent, because it's easy for us to sit over here and, you know, say we're all Ukrainians, we're not sitting in the freezing cold with no water and power. And we haven't been the ones who had lots and lots of relatives die. So I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question, right? Uh, at what point, do you say, let's stop the carnage. Uh, we can find an off ramp. Maybe, you know, at the end of it, it looks like a, just a tragic uh, situation where nothing really changed. You've still got Russian troops in the East. You've still got Crimea. But does it draw a line under it and allow you to start rebuilding the country? I don't know. I mean, that's above my pay grade again. Um, yeah. Or do you say, we're going to bank on Zelensky, we're going to keep pouring resources into this until they own the whole country again? Yeah. Well, it, like it I seems said, that I don't, see, I don't see them leaving Crimea. So right. they're going to have to come up with something that is is a settlement. Well, it seems that if, if there are wheat shortages because of you know this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, you, you could find yourself in a, in a, in a spot to where uh, public sentiment shifts because of the impact on, you know, uh, food prices. People are like, whoa, whoa, why, why are we facing, why are we doing this? And so um, it, it would seem to be better to at least have those talks now um, rather than late, wait longer for no real reason to your, to your point. It seems like what, what I'm not sure what Putin's going to achieve. I'm not sure what the Ukrainians expect to achieve. It seems like we're just kind of um, um, pushing for nothing at this point, unfortunately. 
Should Ukraine become a member? Right, and, and we're all... Yeah, well, I mean, we're putting all these resources into it. And, and again, for good reason, look, the Ukrainian people and the military have fought incredibly well, right? And, you know, we've, we've provided a great deal of assistance. They wouldn't have been able to get to this point without, you know, what, what we've done, uh, and we being the whole community of, of support for the Ukrainians. Um, Putin is probably anticipating that he can wait out the situation. He's probably thinking that his population... Uh, is willing to put up with it and suffer more than the 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 Western population is willing to just do this uh, for some undetermined lengthy period of time um, because he's watched the West, right? And he knows that the West tends to have sort of this short attention span. Now, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years, right? So that, that probably changes his calculus a little bit. But mm. uh, yeah, I think that there needs to be a dialogue about all the scenarios, right? The problem is right now, anybody who mentions, well, we should look at what a settlement means. We should look at what those scenarios are. Well, then you get, you know, a lot of self-righteous people. And I'm amazed to see how many war hawks are on the Dem side, um, you know, screaming and saying, well, you're just a, you're a a Nazi or you're a a Putin sympathizer or whatever. He's like, no, we're just being realistic here. You got to know what your end game is when you're in something like this. Right. right. Um, so it's 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 a logical thing to say we should be looking at all the options and all the alternatives here to understand, you know, where this could go. Doesn't mean you're a Putin sympathizer. Putin's a war criminal. Right. But there's got to be at some point. There's got to be some pragmatic solution. And if that solution is we're just going to keep supporting it until. Ukraine wins, you got to define what wins mean, you know, and, and it, it becomes very messy, but people tend to have short-term attention spans and they want to feel self-righteous and, you know, wave whatever flag is supporting whatever cause they're in there in the moment. And they don't want to think four or five steps down the road. Well, it, it's similar to the China question, right? Which is, what do you, what do you, you know, we have all these problems. What are we going to do to stop them because they're not going to just stop because you said, Hey, stop, you know, stop in the name of the law. That, that's not how this works. And so you have these characters who are going to do their own thing. And so you start saying, well, this is a real negotiation. This is not something where um, it's as simple as saying, Hey, you violated this rule according to the UN. Therefore we're going to take it to stop. And you're going to listen that that's not how this works. And so, uh, and there's real, real people's lives at stake. And so it, 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 the stakes are quite high and, uh, to your point about getting your flag out and waving it over here, I think is is quite astute because people we're, we're diminishing what's really happening on the ground and not going through um, what might be the best thing. And also asking the questions of how do we prevent this from happening in the future? And so when you talk about uh, which my next question about Ukraine being a member of NATO, should we push for that? Should we stay away from that? Should we maybe rethink how we organize NATO? Because, uh, you can say Putin's wrong on one hand and also say he's doing it because of what we're doing on the other, and both of those be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that is true. Yeah, it'd be great to have Ukraine and NATO, uh, but it's also true that that, from Putin's perspective, is an existential threat, right? Uh, which, again, you could argue and go, well, what the hell is, what does that mean? How, you know, how does he think, you know, a NATO country on his border you have to, again, step back and understand what Putin's mindset is and where he comes from, what his background is. That doesn't sympathize with him. That just says you got to know what your operating environment is. You know, crying out loud, people, people make these simplistic arguments nowadays, you know, and uh, you, I don't know. And so I think that, you know, that question of, of Ukraine joining NATO, look, they weren't going to be invited into NATO, you know, it just was you know, because there was enough there were enough pragmatic individuals inside the NATO community that understood that's probably a bad move. Right. And frankly, look at it this way. And again, this is unpopular, but you know, anytime people talked about Ukraine prior to the beginning of this year, you know, half the time they were talking about how corrupt the country was. That's exactly, again, that takes nothing away from the fact that, you know, they were invaded and they've been fighting bravely and, you know, that in Putin's, you know, a war criminal, it doesn't take any, but I'm just saying, you got to look at the reality on the ground as uncomfortable sometimes as things may be and realize how messy your choices can be. You know, we, the world isn't the way that you, you, you want it to be, right. It's, it's how it is and you got to deal with it. 
So it's like the, our relationship with the Saudis. You know, people want to get all self-righteous about that. Well, sorry. You know, it's our, in our best interest to deal with the Saudis. And, and you know, if, if we could live in a world where, my God, we're all going to deal with people who share our values. Good luck with that. Yeah, I think the you bring the Saudis up, I think it's interesting because the frustration I have is, as a free market capitalist, is not doing business with the Saudis. Um, it is the seeming hypocrisy of people um, like large corporations in the U S who might, um, you know, take opinions here in the U S we'll take someone right now, Elon Musk, who just took over Twitter. Um, and you know, people are wigging out over that, which is, seems kind of silly and petty, but there are criticisms of Musk that could be laid. Um, and, and usually those get overlooked. And so the fact is that he during COVID was quite critical of our government, rightly so, I think, for how they're handling things. But I haven't heard him once come out and criticize the CCP for how they handle things. Um, and so there, there are things in which you can look at and say, well, how are we doing these business dealings here? And I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. What I have is, is the seemingly hypocrisy of people of how they pretend like they're, the, the, like they're really outraged over this, but they're really not because they have obvious dealings in these other areas. To me, that's the, the really the complaint. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, it's, it's the, yeah, I I spent most of my, actually my childhood and my adult life overseas. And, uh, you know, the the world is a pretty messy place in a lot of parts and you have to be pragmatic. And in in the U S I think any administration needs to start off with the mindset that we are going to act in our own best interest because every other nation does. And we always seem to think that, Oh my God, that makes us, selfish and it you know oh we're the terrible people well okay fine but every other nation out there they don't give a shit they're acting in their own best interest and so the u.s needs to every now and then needs to remind itself whichever administration's in charge that that's what we need to do it doesn't mean that you don't have a community of nations or at least try to you don't have dialogue you don't have organizations that that work together of course you do um but at the, at, the, at the base of it all is that concept. Now, if that's the case, then let's take um, energy as a national security issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's in our own best interest to do two things at the same time. One is to do everything we can to research and development, uh, develop and promote uh, new technologies in green energy. Fine. We can all get along with that. That's not going to happen tomorrow. So it's also in our best interest to utilize what we currently have uh, in the fossil fuel industry, right? You can do both of those things at the same time. And in fact, fossil fuel companies spend more money on research and development and green energy than anybody else because it's a, they understand it's a free market. And if they get there first, it's like developing the best battery. You get there first, you're going to win. So we should be thinking about this. We also don't kind of consider, you know, the fact that you've got dozens of pounds of rare earth minerals sitting in every electric car battery. Right. We just charge forward because ah, car batteries are electric cars. Great. Makes me feel good. I'm all righteous. But we have to also understand what that means in terms of damage to the planet. When you're talking about massive open mines, you know, hauling out all the rare earth minerals um, and who controls those. So there's all sorts of layers to this, I guess. And, and you know, the Saudis are a good example. You know, the Biden administration spent or he spent his campaign talking about how he's going to make the Saudis pariahs. Right? Mm-hmm. And. Then he has to go over there this year and uh, deal with them, right? right? Because he declares war on the fossil fuel industry. So as a free market system, you know, they're saying, well, shit, our business is going to go away. Therefore, what is our incentive to, to invest in future development? Probably not much. So production starts to slow down. Fracking regulations come into place. We're telling the Saudis they're going to be pariahs, Um yeah, we walked ourselves into it. It's a self-inflicted wound. But I guess overall of this, it's not really political as so much as just being pragmatic um, because, you know, the Republicans can be as stupid or more so than the Democrats at times. Oh, you easily. Know, they, 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 nobody's got a lock on being dysfunctional. Well, and just one quick point on, on the Saudi thing. Part of my frustration about the China narrative is our narrative in the U.S. is pushing if, – if, so if we say that China's a great threat, this that paradigm – our narrative is pushing the Saudis mm-hmm. towards China so that they do more business with China and become a better, they're not allies of the U.S., but we use the term loosely ally with China than the U.S. It's like this This is quite simple to see 
Um, the Saudi economy is based upon oil and gas. Like that is their economy. That's it. That's the main thing that they're, they're trying to bring in all this other stuff. But right now it's oil and gas. And so uh, China is a big consumer of oil and gas. They're not the U.S., but they're a big consumer. They're coming up. And so I, these are these are things that you talk about being pragmatic. It's like, guys, come on. This is this is quite apparent to anyone who can just do some simple Googling. Um, and yet we are pushing the Saudis uh, to work with China. Xi Jinping was just meeting with the Saudis uh uh, last week or week before last, and so um, it's a bit, it's, a, it's a bit frustrating right. to bring that up. It's like, guys, come on, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, well, it is because it, it, it indicates that we're not we're not thinking again four or five. It's like chess, right? If all you're right. doing is thinking about your immediate move, you're going to get screwed, right? So we have to we have to be smarter than that. And and again, that it doesn't take away from the importance of green energy, but that shouldn't be our first and foremost concern, right? There's there's other issues that need to be at the top of the heap as well. And we can multitask. But I think that, yeah, to your point, look, uh, our energy policy has benefited really nobody except for the Russians, uh, the Saudis, uh, you know, uh, the Iranians to the degree that they can, you know, bust the sanctions and, and, and ship out oil. Um, Chinese, you know, we have a meeting with China and claim to spend a good portion of it talking about climate change and Guarantee is Jeeves was like, oh, God, really? Okay. And they probably walked out and personally built a new coal plant after right. that meeting. So Exactly. Okay. In the, a little bit of a rapid fire here, let's go through it. Um, we had on, I said, James Olson from the CIA a few episodes ago. He said that the best, I don't want to misquote him, but I think it was the best counterintelligence agency come across were from Cuba, from Cuba of all places, which kind of caught me off guard. Uh, would you agree, disagree with that assessment? Have you come across Cuban agents and can speak to their prowess? Well, look, the, the part of it is that, you know, we, we have history with, with, you know, the fact that the Cuban service, which was built by the Russians, right, by the Soviets, right? Mm-hmm. And then the Cuban service to this day still doesn't, you know, take a piss without, you know, the, so, the Russians knowing about it. <laughs> um, so in part, they were efficient and effective because of the support and the training and, and, and the resources that they had through the Soviet Union and, and now from the Russians. Um, and they, you know, they were very successful against, uh, against the agency in terms of operations on island. So, yeah, I would say that, I would say that, you know, they certainly up there. Um, and again, for those reasons, uh, other services that are extremely capable, the Chinese, you know, their intel operations, in part because they've got a very long view, I would argue they're probably the most dangerous because they're willing to invest decades in individuals or particular operations. Right? They, they have a much longer view of these sort of things than here in the U.S. or with some of our allies. So that makes them dangerous. The Russians, Russians tend to do this shotgun approach where they'll just throw shit against the wall and see what sticks. And sometimes they get very, very fortunate. They get very lucky um, because they're not really surgical or selective necessarily. Um, and their Cold War's never ended from Putin's point of view, right? We all thought we were going to get some peace dividend, but that that wasn't the way the world actually works. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. If you had to pick a sleeper nation that's going to ascend to power, not one or two, but just rise up in the ranks of the next 10 to 20 years, who might that be? Well, I'm still a UK citizen, uh, so I'm going to have to say, <laughs> I, I'm going to say the empire is coming. The back. Brits are back, baby. The Brits are back. Okay. <laughs> okay, the Brits are back. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I'll tell you what, naval power is going is gonna, to gonna become the most important thing again. Um, so, no, I, you know what, I, I don't think there's a, a sleeper nation out there that's going to do that. I think it's. You know, I, I, I think look, things haven't really changed. If you if you had asked, I don't know, a couple of decades ago, uh, a group of intel and military personnel in Washington, D.C., what are your top priorities, concerns, you know, from a national security perspective? You know, it would be China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and then some other element. And sometimes that element is, you know, the threats to our infrastructure. Right. Um, and that really hasn't changed over the years. It's been remarkably consistent in terms of, 
you know, those, those being at the top of the, of the heap in terms of our concerns. Okay. What is the thing that you're most proud of that the agency has been able to accomplish? Oh, that's a long list. Look, I'm a, <laughs> you know, I don't like to think I've got rose colored glasses, but I'm a, I'm a real fan of the agency. It, I had a, a terrific time. Uh, I have met my very fair share of exceptional people uh, who worked there and are working there. Um, so I don't think I could, I don't think I could pick one thing. Have we made mistakes over the years? Well, sure. It's a human endeavor, right? In a, in a risk-taking uh, environment. So yes, there have been problems. Um, but overall, yeah, I don't think I could actually pick one thing that uh, I would say is is what I'm most proud of when I'm thinking of activities of the agency over the years. It's, it's a remarkable organization. Um, I will say that science and technology, you know, those, those, those folks in that uh, element of the, of the organization have, are just incredible what they've done over the years, right? Everything from mm. developing battery technology that has benefited society as a whole uh, to um, satellite imagery and the work that that does now in the general public. People don't really realize that, but there's a lot of things that they've done initially because of national security concerns and having to develop technology to support operations that eventually makes its way out into the public. You know, if you're walking around with a pacemaker, hey, you know, at some point, you know, thanks to the agency for the work that they did in developing uh, battery technology. Uh, If we're doing satellite imagery to support environmental concerns, hey, congratulations. Again, in part, the agency developing that capability. Uh, the U2 program, the Blackbird, all these things that they've done over the years, just incredible. But overall, yeah, couldn't say enough good things about it. That's probably exactly what people would expect, but meh, that's who Okay, <laughs> so right now, if you could have the ear of insert the right people here, I'll let you pick those people, and you could say, hey, we need to change this one thing today, and they would listen and they would do it, what would that one thing be? Uh, term limits, right? Uh, term limits in the primary campaign system. Uh, we're getting increasingly, we're getting, you know, the, the sort of the radical side of both parties showing up and then you have to vote for them in the generals because of the primary system that we've got um, and the way that that works. And you end up with the hard edges, you know, going into the generals uh, and term limits because, you can't tell me that it's beneficial to us to have some 42 year senator uh, or some, you know, 36 year congressperson sitting up there on Capitol Hill. We got a 330 plus million people in this country. You, we can't do better than, uh, you know, some of the candidates that we've got out there right now. We've got some great people, don't get me wrong, but I just think in general terms, uh, those two things, uh, maybe, you know, uh, finance campaign. Uh, reform, you know, and it's all, I realize I'm talking politics now, but it's all designed to try to get some of the dysfunctionality out of the system and get us back to a place where we might have rational people who can work together. Okay. Uh, You mentioned you have a company. You also have all kinds of other stuff going on. Where do you want us to send people to, to follow your work? Oh, Yeah, thank you. That's very kind. Um, Yeah, I run a a global intelligence and uh, risk mitigation security services firm called Portman Square Group, PSG. Um, And uh, very proud of the people that we have in there. Uh, Exceptional staff um, doing some really good work uh, all around the globe. And then uh, then what else? Uh, I've got an audio book coming out in the middle of January on the Scribd platform. The Scribd is the uh, Netflix of books, uh, and that'll be coming out. That's focused on life after the agency um, in terms of uh, building a business. And then we're waiting for a production schedule, hopefully to do the third season of Black Files Declassified on the Discovery Network. You didn't anticipate I was going to have all this marketing. Uh, no, I, I, I knew you were. Uh, I wanted yeah, to hear it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm just banging on endlessly. Uh, that's great so there you go okay awesome well we've got that pulled up i will see if i can find the audio book on audible if so i will link to that 
in the show notes as well. Um, I've got the other stuff in there already, and I'll link to portmansquaregroup.com so listeners can go check out your work. Mike, it's great to have you on. Always enjoy listening to you on Rogan and wherever, wherever else I hear you, so it was great to have you on my show today, and appreciate the time. Oh, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.